Morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to begin uh, just simply uh, recognizing that we're actually at a, uh, a collision of a few days here. Uh, today is on the church calendar, Pentecost, on the national calendar, Memorial Day, uh, and on the South Run Baptist Church calendar, it's our senior Sunday. Uh, and so there are a lot of uh, important uh, things happening. Uh, to start with, though, I actually do want to honor uh, those uh, who have fallen, uh, our soldiers who have given their life for our country. Um, I, uh, I think as Christians, we of all people uh, understand uh, that uh, the honor and the sacrifice of those uh, who have fallen um, uh, means everything uh, to our freedom. Uh, we as Christians have a, a Christian freedom uh, that we are offered to us that was not free, right? This was something that was earned by Christ's death on the cross. Oh, we as a nation, we also have freedoms that were not free as well. So as we begin here, I just want to begin with a moment of silence, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin the service together. Let's start there. Father in heaven, this morning uh, we give you thanks for the men and women who have offered their lives uh, for uh, the lives that we get to enjoy. First and foremost, uh, we think of Christ himself. Christ, you offered yourself up for us that we might have life and have it to the full. And we can never say thank you enough for that. But we know that many others have died as well for our lives to be made fuller. I pray this morning, Lord, uh, on this Pentecost day where you uh, have poured out your Holy Spirit, that you pour out your Spirit once again. We pray for the seniors uh, this morning as well, that they might be filled with hope and possibility and a future. Lord, as they turn that chapter in their uh, the lives of their, uh, the book of their lives, and uh, we look forward uh, to the next chapters that are unveiled. God, for all of this, we give you thanks. For all of this, we give you praise. Uh, and we ask now that you enter this space and speak to our hearts. Amen. <clears throat> all right, I want to begin uh, with Pentecost Sunday, which is uh, a day on which uh, in Acts chapter 2, uh, what happens? Well, after 50 days of waiting, the Holy Spirit comes out and it gets poured down on the, uh, the, the apostles or the disciples in the upper room, right? And the flaming tongues are on the, on the head and, and they start speaking in tongues. And uh, that's what today is all about. Uh, one way uh, that we saw a precursor to this is in Jesus' own word, or actually it's John talking about Jesus, and John says what? He says that uh, he's coming to baptize with water, but there is one who is coming, Jesus, who will baptize with what? With the Holy Spirit and with fire. But I don't want to focus my attention this morning on our New Testament. I, I want to go back to our Old Testament passage. I want us to turn together to uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, 
where we read what has to be one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. I feel like I say that a lot, and so it's not fair, but it really is. This one is filled with all kinds of drama, and it ends uh, wonderfully. It ends combustively. <laughs> now, to set the stage just a little bit, what's happening in 1 Kings at this point, uh, we've got Elijah, and he is battling uh, the prophets around him. He's battling with the king at the time, whose name is Ahab. And uh, what happens in the chapter prior is that God says to Elijah, I'm shutting up the sky. It's not going to rain for a long time. And so it happens. And Elijah warns Ahab, and sure enough, this is what's going on. And then when we get to chapter 18, what has happened? Well, what happens is when you don't get rain outside, it turns to famine. <laughs> and that's what we have at the beginning of chapter 18. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but there's a lot of talk in the news about the debt ceiling and the, the, the fright that we're all experiencing. Will the, will the markets crash, right? I assure you that fear compares in no way to the fear of true famine, where quite literally... They don't have crops to feed them, right? And they're running out of food. And they're crying out to God, let something happen. Let it rain, right? And so in chapter 18, what happens is Elijah calls together Ahab. He calls together all the people of Israel, and they have this huge confrontation. And it's a wonderful confrontation and there's three parts to it in my mind, and uh, the first and the third are, are very quick. They're just, you know, one verse each, basically, and, and the first is in verse 20, and the last is uh, in verse 39. And then there's the center part. The first part is the question, the question that I think we should be asking and, and answering today as well. There's the confrontation where uh, Elijah is, is kind of one-on-one, mano imago, mano, actually it's one-on-450, on because <laughs> there are 450 prophets of Baal who have gathered together. And uh, this takes up the bulk uh, of the reading. And then at the end of it all, there is the commitment. So there's the question, there's confrontation, and there's the commitment. So hopefully you have First uh, Kings opened up, starting in verse 20. We find this. Ahab, the king, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, right? And um, remember, the backdrop to all of this is famine. It is no rain. It is terror. It is we need God to act in some fashion. Which God is going to show up is the real question. And then... Elijah comes near to all the people, and he says, and here's the question, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And here he sets up the the dichotomy, right? Look, if, if Yahweh's God, that's what the Lord here means, it's a name. If Yahweh's God, well, then follow Yahweh. But if Yahweh's not God, Elijah says, then don't do that, or don't follow that. Follow Baal. Maybe Baal is the one. And he, he raises the stakes, right? And he says, look, we are about to have a showdown, 
and we are going to find out who the God of the universe is. And what do the Israelites do? What is their response to this? It says, the people did not answer him a word, right? And why? Why wouldn't they say, why, why wouldn't they jump in? And why wouldn't they say, Baal? Yes, it's definitely Baal. Definitely Yahweh, right? Just so we're clear, at this point, Ahab's been around for a while, and, and he has been raising the altars of Baal all over the nation. And so they have been swayed in this direction. But now they're confused. And now they don't know what to do. And now, frankly, they're just hoping for any kind of answer. And so they're waiting and they're seeing. Which gets us to the confrontation. This is the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, or better yet, Yahweh, and what we'll find out is no God at all, right? And so if we read forward, we find that Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And so he brings forward two bulls. One is for them, cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood, but don't put a fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and I'll lay it on wood, but don't put any fire to it just yet. And then he says, you call the name of your God, I'll call the name of my God, and we'll see who answers by fire. And this one, this one's the God. This one's the one who shows up. This one's the one who sees. This one's the one who answers. And all the people answered. Finally, they speak up and they say, it is well spoken. We will. We will wait and we will see. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and again they limped around the altar that they had made. And there they are, standing before this altar, waiting on fire from heaven, waiting on their God to show up, and it's crickets, right? Nothing happens. This next part's the funny part. There's even a little bathroom humor in it for the kids out there, or the kids at heart. At noon, Elijah <laughs> mocked them. He mocked them. It's, there's no two ways about this. This is mocking. And he said, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is uh, musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or, or perhaps he is asleep, and he, he just needs to be wakened, right? I love it. Uh, the mocking to... Elijah has quite a lot of uh, gumption here, because his turn's coming up. Like, he knows, uh, he, he knows they could say the same thing about him, right? If, if let's say... Uh, the shoes on the other foot, and, and the fire doesn't come down. Nevertheless, they cry aloud. They even cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, 
No one answered. No one paid attention. The gods of the world are often like this, and they're manifold, uh, just so we're clear. Uh, they are no gods, also to be clear. But they seem to be, or, or we set them up as such. And we'll talk later about other ways in which we set things up as gods. But, but here, it reminds us that there is no voice, that they don't answer, and they're not even paying attention. So what happens next? The story gets good. Elijah says to the people, he says, well, come on over here. Come near to me. Come to my side of things. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah then took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the altar, or in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put wood in order, uh, in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said, as if that wasn't enough, fill four jars with water, and pour it all over the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, now do it again, a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So what's he doing? Like, as if the stakes weren't high enough, right? He has, he's already waiting on a fire to come from heaven to burn up this, uh, this sacrifice. Well, now he's just kind of, again, up to the ante, and he's made it all the more difficult for it to get burned up by doing what? By drenching it with water, not once, not twice, but three times. He comes back again and again. And he sets before them and he says, all right, now's the time. And here is the reading for today. And so at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, he prays, Yahweh. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God, that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Before we keep going here, it's really important to say this. None of us are Elijah in any sense of, he's a prophet who has this kind of direct line to God that is important. But it's not Elijah who's doing the work here. This is the really important part. It's not like you and I can uh, somehow manipulate God into doing something. And Elijah's not manipulating God into doing something. Elijah is simply responding to the thing that God is already doing. And so God is working through this man, this prophet, and he has told him in advance, here are the things I would like you to do. And then Elijah responds as what? As a servant and says, yes, Lord, here I am, right? That's what a good prophet says. Yes, Lord, here I am. What would you like me to do? And then he, he receives the word and he sets up this showdown and he does the thing that God wants him to do and then he goes on. 
In verse 37, answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And here we see God's heart. His desire is not to burn up Israel, it's to simply turn their hearts back. They have turned away from their love from their first marriage, from their uh, union with Yahweh, and he is calling them back. He's wanting to turn their hearts. And then he goes on. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, and here's the third part, the commitment is finally here. The Lord, that is Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God, right? And they make this commitment and they say, we realize now how we've gone astray. We've, 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 We've gone in this other direction toward the Baals and towards the non-gods and we're finding our way back. Our heart is getting turned back to God. But then there is this verse here which makes this an Old Testament story proper, which is to say there's bloodshed and violence in it. So what happens next is that the Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. I'm not going to suggest we go out and slaughter uh, prophets of Baal. But I am going to suggest this, that in your life, as you think about those things maybe even those people uh, who have pulled you away from that first love and, and brought you down a path that you should not have gone down, that it's time to cut ties. It's time to slay the prophets of Baal and to make sure those voices never make their way back into your life again. The commitment required here is not just, oh God, oh Yahweh, you are God. That's great, and it's a good start. But it's also, and all of these other things that I had been following, they must go away. Now, we started with context, which is there is famine in the land. These people are starving for food, and they're just waiting on God to act. And they return to God, and what's the very next thing that happens we won't read the passage, but verses 41 to the end of the chapter give us the Lord sending rain. And this is no small detail in all of it, right? God shows up, yes, in this, this awesome way where, where fire comes out of the skies and burns up an, uh, an offering. But he also shows up in the way that they needed it most. Food. They needed rain. They needed to eat. They needed their, their fears squelched, their anxieties to be ceased. And this is what happens when God 
shows up. I'd like to think that this is a story of revival, this story. Revival is uh, both quite literal and figurative. To revive something is to bring it back to life. And in this case, the land was quite literally dying because it did not have rain and it was not able to grow. God shows up and revives the land. But in a spiritual sense, revival is happening here because these people are doing what? They see God in God's fullness, in the fire from heaven that burns up the sacrifice, demonstrates that God is present, and they are being revived by fire. And they're being, their spirits are being turned back to God in this moment. Revival, however, I would say, is not actually the end of this story, nor should it be the end of our stories. Revival, in fact, is actually the beginning of a story. It's the beginning of something new. Something is indeed being brought back to life, but those mountaintop experiences that you may or may not have had in your life where God seems really present will turn back to seasons where uh, life is more ordinary. We don't get to live on the mountaintop where, where God is raining down fire constantly. We should be reminded of those moments, though. And we should remember the times where God showed up in miraculous ways. And we shouldn't be so quick to forget. We need to move, however, from a fire that burns up a sacrifice in some sort of sense out there a, a, a fire that burns up uh, the, the altar for Elijah to a fire that burns somewhere in here. That is, in fact, what the Pentecost fire really is. It's not a revival out there. It's a revival in here. Jesus wants to baptize us with Holy Spirit and fire. And when he wants to, what he wants to say is, we are the sacrifice. Or as Paul put it in Romans 12, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. It turns out that you are the one God is waiting to light on fire and to shine as a beacon to the world. There is a misattributed quote, it's a good quote nonetheless, uh, to John Wesley one of my favorite theologians, who says, catch on fire with passion and the world will come for miles to watch you burn. Catch on fire with passion and the world will come for miles to watch you burn. I think it's what we see in the story with Elijah. And I know that it is what God is calling each and every one of us to. However, there is always a warning that comes with fire, isn't there? Because fire is not safe to play with, is it? It can hurt. It should hurt. But like C.S. Lewis says of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan isn't safe, but he is good. And the fiery Holy Spirit of your life is not safe, but it is very good. This fire, supposed to be in here, it is intentionally 
destructive. It is meant to destroy the idols in your life. Tim Keller says it this way about idols. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. I mean, he could be talking about bales, right? Like this is literally a definition of what is happening in that Old Testament passage in 1 Kings where uh, the bales are anything more important than Yahweh, anything that absorbs the heart and imagination more than Yahweh, anything you seek to give, uh, seek to give you what only Yahweh can give you, the Israelites were seeking from the bales. But we do this in any number of ways, don't we? There are any number of idols out there vying for our attention, vying to take from us that spot that only God deserves. And the Holy Spirit is here on Pentecost to remind us that this spirit is a fiery spirit meant to burn up those things in our lives, or at the very least, put them in the right place. And so the fire of the Holy Spirit is designed to burn up within you all of these idols, all the bits and pieces of your life that you're holding on to that stand in between you and God, the hidden sins, the public sins, the doubts, the anxieties, the desires that lead you away from God, simply put, the idols of your life. And so the warning is this, This kind of destruction, destroying those idols, it actually can hurt. If you've ever done this before in any sincere kind of way, it can hurt because you're losing something that you thought was important to you. Even if it's something that shouldn't be there. But what you need to know is this, that God's fire is always good. It is a fire that you can trust. It is a purifying fire that leads to refinement and purity of heart. Indeed, if you can set yourself on fire, the world will come from a long way away and watch you burn. The charge to you this morning is this, is that we are all faced with a challenge that is not actually that much different from what 1 Kings was talking about and what Israel was faced with. How long will you go limping around in your faith? How long will you go limping around in your faith? Back and forth between the one true God and every other false God that vies for your attention. Let God call fire down on you today, a Pentecost kind of fire that will open up a new chapter in your life a fire that will burn away the old and purify that which is eternal within you. Let's pray together. God, this morning, we ask for new chapters in the lives of our graduates, but in the lives of everybody in this room. Today is an opportunity Today is a day where we can stand here and we can say, like Joshua thousands of years ago, choose this day whom you will serve. Elijah chose to serve you. 
boldly. God, may we choose to serve you as well. May we start a new chapter that begins right now where we choose to serve you in ways that we've held back before. Or maybe we've just not even chosen to at all. And this morning is the morning, God, that we decide today's going to be different. I desire to serve you fully. God, may we act boldly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, we